Thank you, Donald, for your testimony. We thank God for the work that God has done in your life. Here's your Bible. <laughs> You're going to need it for the sermon, so. A lot of man so other man reaps, and uh, so many have sown into you uh, the Word of God and faithfulness to pray over you and shepherd you. And here we are, Cornerstone, reaping uh, just the fruits of all the work that was t- has taken place in your heart and your life. And we rejoice to see God's uh, great work of salvation and sanctification in your life and look forward to many years of just growing together and serving together. Uh, as Bob shared, greatly encouraged by you and so he and just your heart for service and heart for ministry. So much to say. Thank you, Ken, for sharing with us. Thank you for your, your life, your heart, Becky as well, and just the elders at Christ Our Hope and Faith Bible Church. It was uh, two, year 2000 when you first went up. Bob and I and uh, Rex and just going up there just to learn and to grow and, and we're just so encouraged by the example and the model that you men have set for us and uh, we're just so thankful for the partnership that we have in the gospel. It was through uh, Faith Bible Church that I went to Penza years ago and I was mugged and my life was nearly taken away but <laughs> God's sovereignty um, came back safely and it was through Faith Bible also that we're able to... Uh, go to Kazakhstan many times and minister the gospel there and one of the highlights of our trip last, last year was uh, Czech Republic was to minister alongside you and your wife and the team from Faith and Christ Our Hope and just that's just going to continue year, year after year and uh, we praise God for that, we truly thank God you know, who knew that we'd have a sister church a like-minded churches in Spokane, Washington you know, if it was up to me it would be like Orlando, Florida or <laughs> You know, Maui or something, but Spokane's good. Spokane's good. So, thank God for that. Well, again, to echo what Bob shared and all those uh, bloggers of our church shared on, our web- on the websites, it, this week was just tremendous. Uh, it's my 10th Shepherds Conference. So, you know, I've, I've been there, had the snacks, you know, tasted all the treats before, so I knew what to expect, but really one of the key highlights was going with. Uh, 19 men of our church and just to fellowship with them to share jokes to uh, share meals together and just to kind of um, dialogue over the word of God dialogue over the church together was a great um, it was refreshing to my heart and just to kind of they're calling me Pastor James Pastor call me James I'm just James okay so finally towards like the third day they're calling me James it was good to just uh, just uh, hang out together as, as men seeking to follow Christ. Um, we, we were taught by faithful godly men, Steve Lawson, Al Moeller, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, I think it's near maybe late 70s or early 80s. He needed help to get to the pulpit. But once he was at the pulpit, he needed no help. And he was preaching the word without hindrance. And um, this is what Jonathan Edwards said at a funeral uh, of a godly pastor. He said, Useful men are some of the greatest blessing of a people. To have many such is more for a people's happiness than almost anything. They are precious gifts of heaven. I beseech these aged ones that yet remain to let us have much of their prayers that they may leave God with them. And uh, they are indeed God's gifts gifts to all of us and uh, they are definitely entrusting to us and leaving with us a great God through their life, ex- life example and their 
ministry of teaching. Well, there is just so much more I want to say about even Donald's testimony, Christ Our Hope, Faith Bible Church, even about, especially about the Shepherds Conference, but uh, time does not permit us and permit me to share so much about these, uh, these things. Pressed by our commitment to the Word of God, we must go on to our study in the Gospel of John. So our working title, our main title, until John 20 is The Centrality of the Cross to Our Christian Faith. The Centrality of the Cross to Our Christian Faith. And for the second part of the message, we will look at the betrayal and arrest of Christ. But to begin our time, just to highlight again the centrality of the cross. Last week's sermon was, um, was supposed to be an intro that, would, that was supposed to lead us to the text, verses 1 through 11. But I just got so caught up in it that it became the whole sermon, and there's still some left concerning the centrality of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is indeed God's most powerful message to the world. God's most powerful message to the world. Those two wooden beams intersected together representing the cross of our Lord is the Father's most powerful message to you and to me. The cross by itself embodies and presents all the greatest and most precious truths of the Bible. The cross by itself contains His message to all of us. I'd like to outline to you, declare to you five truths that are taught by the cross of Christ. Five truths. The cross of Jesus Christ is, number one, the greatest demonstration of the Father's love for the world. The greatest demonstration of the Father's love for the world. Where shall we go to see God's love for the world? What shall we look to? Shall we look at this world, God's creation, and look at the beauty that's in it to look at God's love for us? That's what Louis Armstrong sang, is it not, in his song, Wonderful World? I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed day and dark sacred night. I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I hear babies crying. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And then do we look to this world and its beauty and say, there, there represents, there is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. No, I find a stronger proof of love in the cross of Christ than anything in this world. To see the love of God towards me and towards this fallen world, as believers united in heart, we look to the cross of Christ. We see the proof of God's love, the demonstration of God's love, the evidence, confirmation, and support of His promise that He loves us. Sometimes we look at our lives and our trials, our hardships, our disappointments. We look at our families. We look at our personal struggles. We look at the disease, death, and and the 
disasters in this world and we ask ourselves, where is God's love? Those questions cease when we look at the cross. We know that the Father loves us because He gave us His only begotten Son, gave Him to suffer and to die. Once and for all, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the Old Testament, repeatedly, God told us of His great love for us. In the New Testament, He backed it up. He demonstrated it by giving us His best, by giving us His own. We talk about love. Let us not love in word or in speech, but in deed and in truth, 1 John 5, 8. Right, let us show love to one another. Let us demonstrate it. Let us not just talk about love. Well, likewise with God. He didn't just talk about God, love. He didn't just share about true compassion. He demonstrated it in the cross. The cross of Christ is not merely the greatest demonstration of the Father's love for the world. The other side of the coin, it is the ultimate accomplishment of sinful man the ultimate accomplishment of sinful man. We know through scripture and through experience that there is no limit to man's sinfulness. No limit. Last summer had the, if you can call it this, privilege of going to Auschwitz, walking the grounds of that death camp where tens of thousands of men, women and Jews were slaughtered without prejudice, just slaughtered, killed, maimed, tortured because of the sinfulness of man. We read and heard about places like Bosnia, Rwanda, North Korea, they all testify to the utter sinfulness of man. But we know that there is no limit because mankind can always kill more people. Mankind can always steal, cheat, rape, more and more and more. Really, there is no limit to man's sinfulness, limited individually only by man's mortality, but corporately as mankind, there is no end in sight to the evil of man. The extent is unlimited, but the height of man's sin ends here on Calvary. The greatest feat of man in terms of sin happened at Calvary when they killed God's only perfect gentle, meek son, when they killed God, there was no greater deed in terms of sin. They couldn't do anything else. More evil, more vile, more wicked. They reached the height of evil here. Therefore, blood guilt is on our hands as mankind. And so we see the beauty of God's love on the cross at the same time, we see the ugliness of man in the same cross. Also, number three, we see the cross of Christ is the most powerful revelation of the Father's hatred of sin. The most powerful revelation of the Father's hatred of sin. And we have to ask, when we look at the cross of Christ, why the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he not die like Luke 3, being thrown from a cliff? Right? 
His death saved us. Not the mode of His death. The sufferings, the torture didn't save us. His death saved us. So why didn't He, why didn't they throw Him off the cliff and, and ransom us, redeem us from our, our sinful life that way? Why wasn't He stoned like John, 5, 59, John 8, 59? Yes, a horrific death, but much better than the crucifixion. Much better than this barbaric way, the mode of death. Why not just die of old age? Die by disease. It is still the result of sin. Why the cross? Why the ugliness, the humiliation, the awfulness of this death to reveal God's hatred for sin? To reveal in His Son God's orge, God's indignation, unbridled passion, God's utter hatred for sin. We see it on the cross of Christ. We see it in its full form, in his, in his crown of thorns on his head, with the whippings across his body, with his torn flesh, with the bruises on his, on his, on his body and his eyes, his twisted body hanging there, tortured, suffering, taking of his life, all reveals how much God hates sin. And therefore our question is, if God treated His own Son, whom He loved, in this way because of sin, if God disciplined His own Son in this way because of sin, what will He do? I mean, what will He do to His enemies who are guilty of such sins? The, the wrath of God. Colossians 3, 5, 6 Paul told the Colossians, put to death sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Why? Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. God will have one response to those who are in sin, who are guilty of such sins. Unbridled anger. And that's seen in the cross of Christ. If people think in the New Testament God is a good God, gentle God, you know, friendly God. It's a you know, new and revised version of God. The Old Testament was the you know, beta version. The New Testament version is a new and improved, without viruses, without bugs, and He's a nice God. Well, take a look at the cross and see what He did to His only Son whom He loved. And we see the most powerful revelation of God of the Father's hatred of sin. Number four, well first we see the greatest demonstration of the Father's love for the world, the ultimate accomplishment of sinful man. Number three, the most powerful revelation of the Father's hatred of sin. Fourthly, we see the surest motivation for us to seek after holiness. The surest motivation for us to seek after holiness and Donald, thank you for your testimony. It fits perfectly with point four. We're saved. We're in. God's sovereign. The question is, why bother? Why? Why do extra credit? If you're getting, a, if you're getting an A, who wants A plus? Right? We're already going to heaven. You know, God is sovereign. I'm set. I'll just ride on this escalator and go to heaven. And yeah, I'll go to church, you know, I'll study the Bible once in a while, but I don't want to get too radical, too fanatical, overcommit, and then take this thing too seriously. 
Why bother striving after holiness? Asaph in the Old Testament pondered this question. He was oppressed by these thoughts because he envied the arrogant. He, he was envious of the wicked and their prosperity. He looked at their lifestyle, the cars that they were driving, right, the homes that they were living in, right, the entertainment that they enjoyed. And he looked at their lives and they had no struggles, no burdens, no concerns, no anxieties, no people to love and care for, no prayer meetings, no need for evangelism and missions. I mean, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. Psalm 73 verse 5. They are not plagued by human ills. And therefore they walk around with pride as their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence, defending themselves. And so Asaph says, In vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I kept my hands innocent. I have done all these things for nothing. I've gone to synagogues for nothing. I've gone to the temple for nothing. Why have I tried to live a life of purity and holiness? For what end? All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Trying to live a righteous life in an ungodly generation is oppressive. It's lonely. It pains us. Why bother? Why fight sin? Why fight pride, selfishness, lust, and impurity? Why strive for evangelism? Why strive to serve in the church? Why fight materialism and pursuing knowledge of the Word and disciplining ourselves to pray? Why struggle so that I might be rejected by this world, ostracized, ostracized by my family and friends, outcast as scum of the earth, What strong reasons are there for us to strive after personal holiness? Do we go to the Ten Commandments to motivate us? Right? Do we go to the book of Leviticus to motivate us? Do we, do we go to the examples of the heroes of the Bible? Yes, they spur us on. Yes, they inspire us. Should we consider the rewards of heaven and the punishments of hell? Is there no stronger motivation still? We say, yes, there is a stronger motivation. All we need to do is look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the cross and you will see the love of Christ that compels us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15 It's great because it's found in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about his life. I mean, I don't have time to go into the details but just this torture and his stoning, stonings and being beaten with robs and shipwrecked and being robbed by countrymen and being endangered from animals and on top of all of this he has the burden of caring for churches and the height of it he has the burden of caring for a church like Corinth right? If all the churches were like Thessalonica, right? If all the churches were like Philippi but of all the burdens he had to care for a church that rejects him, doesn't appreciate him, does not Return his love. He says, why? Why is he bothering? He says, for the love of Christ compels us. The the love of Christ controls us. It drives us because we are convinced that he died for us, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. What, make, what made Paul tick? What drove him to live his life of holiness? Right, to cast aside hyper-Calvinism, if you will. To cast aside like libertine mindset. 
right? Cast aside and living a life of, of, of in the flesh. It was the cross. First Peter 1, 18, 19, the cross tells us that we do not belong to ourselves. I am not my own. I am bought with a price that it costs God. Though salvation is free for us, it wasn't free to God. It cost Him everything. It cost Him His only Son. We are bought not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And the cross of Christ teaches us and reminds us of this solemn truth. There is nothing so sanctifying as a clear view of the cross of Christ. Nothing so purifying as a clear view of the cross of Christ. It crucifies the world onto us and us onto the world. How can we? Woe to you if you can. How can we love sin when we see the cross? of Jesus Christ. A powerful, persuasive motivation for us to pursue practical, motiv- practical sanctification. It drives away hyper-Calvinism. Drives away libertine mindset. Number five, the cross of Christ is the most comforting answer to believers who are in trouble and distress. The most comforting answer to believers who are in trouble with this. I'm, I'm all for you know biblical counseling. I'm all for. I might consider getting a you know studying more and getting an advanced degree in that area. I, I need to do better in counseling. My, you know you guys know me. I'm a preacher, not a counselor. You guys come to me for counseling, and I just preach at you for an hour, and you're crying not because you're convicted, but because you know I'm preaching at you for an hour. So I got to grow in that area. Right, I need to grow on some methods and te- techniques and understand you know, Scripture to use it wisely. But what can comfort us during the hours of our deepest trials and discouragement? I mean, so many times I am placed in a situation where I'm thrust in a situation where I have to comfort someone who is grieving. I'm placed in a place, situation where I have to comfort, console, and encourage a soul who is pressed down with sometimes unimaginable difficulties and hardships. You know, and I, I stand there, I sit there and I ask God, God, give me words. God, give me wisdom. God, give me help. I don't know what to say. I, no verses come to mind. I don't have truth to share that can lift somebody in such, a, a, such despair. What shall I point to, point this soul to who is so burdened? Yes, sovereignty of God is a great consolation to our hearts. The wisdom of God, the love of God, the providence of God, or the examples in the scriptures who have suffered and persevered and received the promises of God, men like Abraham, Job, David, and Paul, these are all good, but if God grants me grace, I am reminded to look to the cross of Christ to point to Christ's life, His suffering, and His death as a singular truth that will soothe and encourage all hearts that are down and downcast. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize you with you. But we have one, brother, who has been tempted in every way just as you are. 
and yet was without sin. We can pray to Him now because He's not high and lofty living in heaven right, without understanding of our weakness. No, He was incarnate on earth and He experienced every suffering and every temptation that you and I go, go through and He empathizes with you because of the cross. Hebrews 12.3 Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you and I will not lose heart. You and I will not lose hope. Let's look at the sufferings. Let's look at the scourges and the torture that he experienced. And may that grant us a heart of endurance. How about Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Dear sister, God gave you Jesus Christ. What more could He give after He gave you Jesus? He gave you everything. Do you think He will withhold you anything that is good? Anything that is of treasure, of comfort to you? He gave you Christ. Therefore, He will withhold nothing that we need for life and godliness. pastor said, There is no school for learning contentment that can be compared with the foot of the cross. Better than Shepherd's Conference, better than Master's Seminary, it's the cross of Christ. You want to grow in doctrine and theology, you want to grow in godliness, go to Calvary. We can all go there and benefit greatly and learn precious truths and grow in Christ. Christ is indeed all these things. So I beg of you, listen with your whole heart, learn with your whole mind, as a pastor, I personally beg. You know, as a pastor, I want, to, I, want, I want to listen to every sermon that is preached at Cornerstone. So I'm always speaking hyperbolic terms, but please, you know, erase your past memory. Consider our Christian lives beginning here. As Marcus shared and prayed, Oh, the cross of Christ, how worthy is it of our attention? How worthy is it of our study, meditation, and contemplation? May our whole beings be fixed on Calvary for the next several months as we study John's account of our Lord's death. Here we go. I believe this is a pursuit that will be that will transform us individually, transform our church. Let us go now to the passage of the Bible. That, that begins our Lord's descent to the Valley of Humiliation, to Calvary. Chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. He's in the city of Jerusalem, prayed the high priestly prayer. He is going on an easterly direction, and there is a valley, the Kidron Valley, that separates Jerusalem, the eastern gate, and the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. Why is it the Mount of Olives? Because that's where they grow olives. And there is a Gethsemane there, an olive press. 
a cave hewn into the mountain or they bring the olives and they press it with weights to make olive oil. So our Lord, after praying, descends across the Kidron Valley, crosses it, and He begins His ascent to go to the garden that is near that olive press. Near that olive press. It had been Jesus' custom throughout the years of His ministry while He was in Jerusalem to spend His evenings in this olive press and in this garden to spend private times of meditation and prayer. No doubt, um, the gardens on the Mount of Olives belong to rich people. We were looking at uh, the hills of Glendale or going to uh, driving around L.A. And we're looking at those big houses there. And it's definitely for rich people because it overlooks like L.A., separated from the hectic uh, busyness of urban L.A. Likewise, the Mount of Olives was high-class real estate. And so someone gave Jesus the, the, the uh, privilege of, of entering into this garden, using it for his disposal, for him and his disciples to use, to dwell, to rest, to sleep, and for Jesus to come and use this garden to be alone, separate from the crowd. In John 7.53 it says, Each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was his home. This was where he could rest and be with his disciples. But most importantly, this was where he could be alone with the Father. As Jesus was leaving Jerusalem on this night, note that it was Passover season. At the Passover season, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims moved into the city from all over the land. It was required of all faithful Jews from a certain geographical distance to make a pilgrimage to offer a sacrifice in the temple. So Jerusalem was bulging with people even at this late hour. They were all there again to offer sacrifices in the temple. Lambs were being slain incessantly during those days. In fact, 30 years after Christ, Josephus tells us that there were 256,000 lambs. A quarter of a million lambs were slain at the Passover in Jerusalem. Now imagine the mess that slaughtering the many lambs on one altar would create. I mean, there's blood running everywhere. Blood flowing all over the city. Well, the Jews have pro provided for this problem. They built a channel which ran from the temple ground and flowed down to the Kidron Valley. And so during Passover season, that Kidron brook, that valley, flowed red with the blood of lambs. So as Christ was crossing this Kidron Valley, undoubtedly, He stepped across the brook and saw that it was red with blood of all the lambs that were being slain for the sins of the people, all pointing to what He will do in a short amount of time. All pointing to the blood, His blood that will be shed for the final atonement of God's people. It became very vivid in His mind, undoubtedly. Verse 2 tells us Judas who betrayed him this is all setting up for the scene. Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
He knew where they were gathered. He knew that Christ would be there because He had gone there every night for the last few nights. Jesus had already betrayed Him, was gathering a force to confront Him. Verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Our Lord sent Judas out because he was, he was not a disciple of Christ. He didn't belong with the disciples. Bible tells us in John 13, 27, soon as Judas left, Satan entered into him. It is one thing to be possessed by a demon, a whole another thing to be possessed by the prince of darkness himself. So in, in utter deception and sin, hypocrisy, he went to the chief priests and the elders and he betrayed Christ to what was amounted to about $30. For $30, 30 silver coins, equivalent to $30 today, he managed, he bargained to betray Christ. I mean, consider this. While our Lord was teaching them, in John 13 through 16, while our Lord was praying the high priestly prayer in John 17, what was Judas doing? Judas was scheming. Judas was planning. Judas was betraying the Lord. All planning a way to betray Him. He rounded up Jewish temple guards, Roman soldiers. They approached the garden near Gethsemane with Swords and clubs, Matthew 26, 47 says. Weapons and torches. Here is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They should have welcomed Him. They should have embraced and worshipped Him. But they're coming with weapons. Temple guards weren't allowed to, to carry swords. In fact, Jewish people were not allowed to have swords. It was against the law. So they were carrying clubs. The Roman so- soldiers were in full armor, carrying their swords to betray the Prince of Peace. They come ready to do battle with Christ. They come with torches as well. Historians tell us that at the time of the month, there was a full moon... Jerusalem would have been brilliantly lit up by that full moon. They would have no need for torches, no need for lanterns to see their way up Mount of Olives. Why the torches? Because they were expecting Christ to be running. They were expecting Him to be hiding. Just like Saddam Hussein with all his pretense of strength and courage. When U.S. attacked, where was he hiding? In a spider hole. Hiding in a cave. Running away. They expected Christ to be hiding. They thought they would have to chase him and and scurry him out from the garden. And Judas was leaving the small. What an insult. What a cruel misinterpretation of who he was. That they would come with weapons and torches led by Judas. I mean, it's not our Lord's enemy that was doing this. It is one of Jesus' twelve chosen disciples 
Judas's act is shameless and disgusting. He proves himself utterly unworthy of the title of being one of the twelve. In every list in the Gospels, he is always found last. I mean, think about the greatest fool to ever live on the earth. The greatest fool. He throws it all away for 30 silver coins. $30. I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised when I see people turn away from Christ and go back into a world of sin. Why am I surprised? I'm, I'm a fool for being surprised for I should consider Judas. Men have done it for far less. And here is Judas. He was with Jesus for three years. Had the great honor of being in the inner circle with the Lord. I mean, he had the privilege of eating with him. I mean, having Q&A with Jesus Christ. I mean, forget R.C. Sproul, Al Mohler, Steve Lawson, MacArthur, great men. But he had Q&A with Jesus. To listen to his sermons, to minister alongside of him, to be an eyewitness to his miracles. And yet he throws it all away because of his greed. The synoptic Gospels tell us that Judas approached Jesus and kissed him repeatedly. The Greek construction tells us it was not a one-time kiss. Judas kissed him repeatedly to identify who Jesus was, the Roman soldiers and the temple guards. Height of hypocrisy, kissed him on his face, kissed him on his lips. Height of arrogance and presumption. You know, servants might kiss the feet of a master. Servants might come and kiss, or uh, people might kiss the hand of a king. Or some might kiss the hem of a garment of some nobleman. But here is Judas. He dares approach Christ with intimacy, pretense of heart of love, and kisses him repeatedly. It reveals Judas is evil, his utter self-deception and his hypocrisy. What a foolish thing for Judas to think that Jesus has no idea. I mean, verse 4, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus knew it all, but I mean, how foolish is Judas to think Jesus has no idea what I'm doing? Well, let me quote to you what John MacArthur said. The saddest part of Judas' betrayal is not that he endured one Judas' kiss, but he has endured a million since then. People who exalt him to the skies won't live for him. People who talk about all of his greatness never receive him as their savior. What is that but a Judas' kiss? Polluting the Son of Man's face today as Judas did almost 2,000 years ago. Are you Judas today? God doesn't know. My way is not known to Him. My thoughts are hidden to Him. I can come to church and publicly kiss Him. Proskuneo, right? Kiss His feet, worship Him. And none are wiser. None know. And in this hypocrisy, we deceive ourselves. But God is not deceived. If you are uh, utterly um, perplexed at the deception, hypocrisy of Judas, 
How about ourselves? Are we hypocritically worshipping Christ? Are we like the Pharisee, boasting of ourselves? Boasting in our righteousness, confident in our flesh, presuming a close relationship with Him, when we should be bowed low, humbled, repentant, confessing before Him. Just a few more minutes. Let me just do one point. It's the first point. Verse 4a, Then Jesus, knowing, that all, knowing all that would happen to Him, our Lord knew. I mean, John 2, 24, 25, He did not entrust Himself to man because He knew it wasn't the heart of man. The heart of man is a, a closed curtain to us, but not to Christ. John 13, 1, He knew that this hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. John 21:17 Peter said to Christ, "Lord, you know everything. You know my heart, you know that I love you. Our Lord is omniscient. He knows everything. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He didn't wait for his enemies to get him. He wasn't hiding behind a tree. He went out the gate and met them while they were on their way in. And now that the setting is established, Let's look at the four points that will help navigate us through this passage. Four considerations in Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll close with point one. The Lord's courage as He faced the cross. Lord's courage as He faced the cross. Verse four, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Here is the majestic courage of Jesus Christ. What valor, what magnificent boldness He displayed in going to the cross. Jesus initiated the confrontation, not Judas. Judas didn't have an opportunity to open his mouth. Jesus went to him. Jesus went to the guards. Jesus went to the soldiers that were approaching him. The Lord, our Lord, was the first to speak. He did not wait to be challenged. His reason for asking this question is indicated in the then. The therefore of the previous clause. Therefore Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward. Because He knew what was happening to Him, He came forward few minutes before, he was on his knees, sweating drops of blood. Father, can this cup be taken from me? He was crying. He was crying tears. He was crying out, calling out to the Father. Can this cup be taken from me? But as soon as he got the answer, no more tears. No more agonizing. No more time on his knees. Three times he went. God gave him the answer. The answer was, he would drink this cup. He would drink the cup of God's wrath. God would abandon him on the cross. Father's will was clear. He didn't wallow in his sorrow. He didn't remain in the state of grief and sadness. Soon as he received the answer to his prayer, he rose. Did not wait for Judas. Did not wait for the crowds to approach him. He advanced to the line of battle and met them head on with strength and conviction. No more teachings. No more sermons. No more miracles. No more prayers. Only one thing left to do is to suffer and die. 
The hour has come and he goes to meet his accusers. He tells his disciples, here comes my betrayer. And he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, said to them, I am he. Now in the Greek construct, he isn't there. He just says, I am. The name of God identify himself as Jesus. Judas was with them. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, the secret miraculous power here. Our Lord and the Father wanted to show that Judas had no power over Christ. These soldiers had no power over Him. The other Gospels dwell on our Lord's agony, on His knees, on the ground in anguish, but not in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, our Lord is standing. Standing before the whole Roman army, while the Roman army is on the ground. A secret, invisible power, no doubt, accompanying His words, I am. In no way, in no other way can we account for these hundreds of hardy Roman soldiers falling prostrate before a single unarmed man. I mean, let's not make fun of these Roman soldiers. They were trained for battle, ready for conflict. They did not stumble and fall. They're not like three stooges lined up next to one another. One stumbles and they all fall to the ground. It's not a misstep on their part. A real miracle was wrought here. Those few eyes, few had eyes to see it. At the moment when our Lord seemed weak, He showed that He was strong. There He was, a single, unarmed, lonely figure. And there was an army before Him, equipped and manned for war. Manned for war and He simply spoke His name. And they collapsed before Him. There flowed from Jesus such commanding power and authority that they could not even stand up to His presence. Arthur Pink said it was a display of his divine majesty. It was a quiet ex- it, was a, it was a quiet exhibition of his divine power. It was a signal single demonstration that he was the word. He did not strike them with his hand. There was no need to. He simply spoke two monosyllables and they were completely completely overcome. Here we see the courage of Christ that he is not a victim of these men, that they had no power over him, that he had completely complete power, and that he went to the cross voluntarily. Time prevents us from going further. We'll continue next week, which is two thoughts. You know, our, our, the Lord can be very hard on Judas, the Father and the Holy Spirit as well, but we cannot. Who are we to indict Judas? I mean, who are we? We all have a little bit of Judas in all of our hearts, do we not? I'll be the first one to raise my hand, saying that many times I've publicly kissed Christ. My heart was far away. And in that instant, I live unbelief. I do not cast aside unbelief. No, I, I harbored in my heart 
Because by that act, I am saying God doesn't know. I am fooling Jesus Christ. He has no idea. Therefore, I am like Judas. Before we condemn Judas, may we look at the plank in our own eyes and consider our own hypocrisy. Now, we're all hypocrites, but what separates us from Judas and, and, and Peter or John it's that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just. He'll forgive us of all unrighteousness. Right? We don't pretend. Right? We don't pretend. We don't, we're not presumptuous. We're not high-handed of our outward pretense. We don't do penance. We are repentant. Again, Luke 18, we're the guy on the last row beating our chest. Father, forgive me, for I am a hypocrite. I'm a great hypocrite. Secondly, consider um, the courage of our Lord. I mean, let's have a right view of Jesus Christ. He was not frightened. He was not afraid. He was not running away. He was not a victim. Yes, he was a lamb, but he was also a lion. Courageous before his tormentors, those who would uh, crucify him. Let's consider his bravery courageous heart and honor him as such oh the cross is so wonderful to us it is the singular demonstration of your love for us of your eternal abiding love for us it reveals your holiness your hatred for sin but it is a source of our great prize, a source of our great boasting, our greatest boasting. It's our greatest treasure because it is through it that we are saved. It is through it that our sins are forgiven. Oh Father, we, we ask you, God, that we will learn at the school of Calvary, that you would teach us, that you would motivate us to holiness through Calvary, that you would teach us and help us to see the, the wickedness of sin, wickedness of man's hypocrisy and evil. At the same time, you'll teach us the beauty of your Son, His perfect submission, His meek, humble going to the cross. May we find in Christ's example the strength and the courage to submit after you, to obey you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.